Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with Derek Davison, and we are very happy and excited to welcome back Nuan Tran, who's an assistant professor at the University of Connecticut and uh, author of the book, an important book titled Disunion, Anti-Communist Nationalism and the Making of the Republic of Vietnam. So Nuan, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you for having me. It's really great to be back. Um, so why don't we just get into it? Because I think one of the interesting things in the historiography of the Vietnam War that we talked about on our episode that will actually um, have already been released by the time this episode is released um, with Fred Logaval, but we talked about how there's been a lot of revision about the U.S. South Vietnam or Republic of Vietnam relationship recently. Because I would say that when you're talking about how the average American critic of the Vietnam War, which at this point is most Americans, you don't even have to be particularly left-wing to be a critic of the Vietnam War, the average person would say, you know, South Vietnam was a client state, it wasn't a real state, it was the United States basic, uh, basically propping up a government that didn't have a real popular base of support and didn't even really have anything behind it. And that it was really the United States preventing the real Vietnam government of North Vietnam, the communist government, from, you know, doing what was rightfully, uh, what it should have rightfully done, which is unite the country and, and uh, govern under communist rule. But a lot of new historiography goes against this. So maybe we could just start, because it's such a revision in what most people understand, what would you say the typical story that I just told gets wrong? And then we could go into your, your actual book. Sure. So I think there are things that the typical story gets right and things that the typical story gets wrong. So I think that I would not say that the United States created the Republic of Vietnam or South, the South Vietnamese government. But I do think it's fair to say that the United States played a major role in the survival, especially in the early years of the Republic of Vietnam. I think that's fair to say. Um, where I think that that story is wrong is that it presents itself as the only story. That the, that the Republic of Vietnam or South Vietnam should be understood primarily or exclusively within the framework of American intervention or the larger story of America's Cold War struggle. That it's part of this larger pattern of the United States backing dictators in various parts of the world. Well, that's only a part of the story. The other part of the story that's missing from this popular understanding is that the Republic of Vietnam was also rooted in Vietnamese history. There were real Vietnamese behind it who, and and it grows out of a longer history of revolutionary nationalism, republicanism, and anti-communism. And that these ideas were in Vietnam, and these movements were important in Vietnam prior to American involvement. And in many ways, they outlast, among Vietnamese people, they outlast American involvement. They outlast the war. So when we did the, the whole Vietnam series with Sean Fear, we did quite a bit on the background of Ho and revolutionary communism. But why don't we start this one in kind of a mirror image? Who, who or what do you think we need to know about and understand in order to understand of, of uh, what you're terming revolutionary nationalism? What are the ideological streams that go into what will eventually be expressed in the government of the Republic of Vietnam? So I would say there's two main ideological streams I would identify. 
republicanism, and nationalism. But first, let me rewind. So I like to describe the anti-colonial movement as it existed from, say, the 1920s to the 1950s as a modern revolutionary movement. This is a movement led by young, mostly young Vietnamese men and women who are dissatisfied with French colonialism. They didn't think it made sense to work with the French to try to implement reforms. And they didn't want to just publicly criticize the French. They wanted to overthrow the French through violence, and they formed these underground political parties that tried to do so. Now, so much of the story that most people know or think they know is that this movement was primarily communist or it was eventually became communist. Rather, the story I think is more accurate and that's supported by the newer scholarship is that this revolutionary movement eventually split between people who espoused republicanism and nationalism and people who rejected that in favor of communism. These young men and women who formed the movement, this, who were part of this movement, were very influenced by French republicanism, the tradition of, of representative government and civil liberties as it grew out of the French Revolution. They were also very influenced by nationalism. They thought of the Vietnamese nation as sort of the, the basis of this future government. But then there were also young men and women who rejected that, who felt that that was inadequate, and who favored communism, and who favored a more sort of, a, the, uh, who favored what they would later call people's democracy, uh, that they believe the Vietnamese nation, the future Vietnamese government should be based on the Vietnamese working class and the Vietnamese peasantry, and not on all ethnic Vietnamese. So you're referring to these groups of uh, men and women in the in the 20s and the 30s. Were there any particular centers in Vietnam, in, in, in French-governed Vietnam? Were, did they, were they mostly bourgeoisie? Were they mostly uh, urban? Were, the, were there rural intellectuals? Who are the people? Because I imagine there's a moment, correct me if I'm wrong, where the communists and the nationalists are all like kind of in the same world because they're both, they're all anti-colonial. So could you maybe talk about that sort of social world that is fermenting in the, in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s? Sure. So most of these young men and women revolutionaries were urbanites or urbanizing. So some of them had roots in the countryside, but they went to the cities to go to school because that's where the schools were generally, most of the schools were located during the French colonial period. It was clear to parents that if they wanted their children to rise in the bureaucracy and get positions, uh, they needed to know the new, uh, newly adopted Latin alphabet. Uh, which came to be known as Quoc Nu, or the national script. And so the Vietnamese culture became internationalized in a way it hadn't been before. And uh, at the same time, a familiarity, a new familiarity with Western political ideologies. So there are young men or women who go to school. They're usually from either a sort of a rural gentry, so like among the wealthier elements in the village, or they're middle-class urban people. They go to school, they get exposed to many of these ideas, they learn French. Through their French, they get exposed to ideas beyond Vietnam, ideas like republicanism and communism, and eventually fascism as well. And they're the ones who really lead, the, 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 they're the ones who become the leaders of the modern revolutionary movement. And it's true that in the early, in, no, in the early years, there wasn't a real strong sense of ideological division among these young people. Many of them actually had a lot in common, that they, they believed in the future, they believed that, in the power of youth, and they believed in eventually overthrowing French colonialism. They believed in a future independent Vietnam. 
So when we're talking about like maybe someone not like Ho, who's like so embedded in international communism, but when we're talking about people who, who might have been literally in Vietnam and staying there, was there a sense that there's going to be a unified Vietnam? There'll be a communist party. There'll be a nationalist party. There'll be these various other, maybe a fascist party. There'll be these various sort of groups in a parliamentary structure? Like, what is the vision that they want? Is it basically what I'm asking? Was there a vision of pluralism or is there a vision like only one of us is going to win and we got to, you know, destroy our enemies? So just about every political party thought that they should lead the revolution. However, some parties were more willing to work with other parties and some parties really weren't. So it really varied. At the same time, I think there was also, uh, until the, until the 1940s, even though there was a sort of a general, there was an understanding among these young, young men and women that there were different parties, the friction or the, the conflict between the parties, it, there was a rift, certainly, between communists and the non-communist parties, but it wasn't quite sort of the mutual antagonism that emerged in the 1940s. That's really the moment where we really see that this rift or this division really becomes a sort of schism, that, that these two groups would no longer work together. But prior to that, I don't think that either of the rank and file of neither party expected there to be a civil war. So is it possible, and it might very well not be possible, to put numbers behind this, like 20% support of the communists, 40% support of the nationalists? Do we get, what is sort of the popular base? Is there a popular base or is this basically a movement of educated intellectuals or, or basically is this like a stratum of education, educated intellectuals? I haven't seen good scholarship that gives really good hard numbers for most of these groups. It's, you know, they're, they're kind of estimates. Um, what I would say is that the earliest leaders of this revolutionary movement were definitely sort of middle-class, urbanite, urban-based intellectuals. However, it doesn't stay there. These ideas travel. And by the, by the mid-40s um, and the early 50s, we see other groups pick up nationalism. Other groups seem to be influenced by republicanism. Now, these other groups, these groups that aren't political parties, they don't always articulate a clear political program because they are not political parties. That's not necessarily how they envision themselves, but they're clearly influenced by those ideas. And so I would say that what we see is that these ideas start out sort of this middle class urbanites, but then it travels and gets picked up by groups that do have rural roots and do have, you know, do have sort of lower class rank and file peasant members. So I think that pretty much naturally brings us to World War II. Um, so how does World War II reshape all of this? Because um, J Japan, correct me if I'm wrong, takes over much of Vietnam, if not all of Vietnam. So how does that affect, or what will become, so how does that affect the, the sort of um, political constellation we're talking about? And then that, of course, leads into the schism that you just mentioned. So World War II is really key for this, for understanding what will become the schism, because it sets up some of the circumstances that lead to the schism. So at the most general level, in many ways, the Japanese occupation of Vietnam during World War II really fired popular patriotism. The Japanese promoted ideas like Asia for Asians, and the Japanese also left the Vichy-affiliated uh, Vichy colonial government in power. Vichy ideology was very conservative, but it also encouraged a certain nativism. And both those influences actually really encouraged, um, really fired patriotism at a, at a popular level. When, it, when we're talking about these groups, what we see is that some groups initially sided with the Japanese because they hoped that the Japanese would 
help would liberate Vietnam and overthrow colonialism. Other groups, namely the communists, the Trotskyists, people on the far left, opposed the Japanese from the very start. And there were other groups that, that were a little bit, that, that were, were not quite so defined in their um, reaction to the Japanese. But this division over whether or not to support the occupation is one of the factors that, that deepens the rift between these various groups. So then what happens over the course of the war? How, how, do, how do these divisions deepen? In what particular ways do they deepen? And then how do we get um, this sort of mutual antagonism that will eventually help lead to the uh, Second Indochina War? So the key year, is, I would say, is 1945. So prior to 1945, the communists have created a front organization known as the Viet Men. The Viet Men are very well organized, um, especially in northern, the northern half of Vietnam. They're very well organized. And some of the non-communist groups in northern Vietnam, which, who are by that point opposed to the communists, they become nervous and they form an alliance against the Viet Minh. The key moment for the Viet Minh is during the famine of late 44 through 45, the winter of 1944 and 1945. There's a major famine in the northern half of Vietnam. And the Viet Minh was, was really the only group that was organized enough to provide famine relief. So, so that provided a major boost of popularity for the Viet Minh among ordinary peasants. The Viet Minh organized the peasants to seize rice stocks and gain tremendous prestige. This peasant support gave them a political edge they never lost. In the South, it's a really different story. So in the South, in 1940, the communists led this aborted uprising that failed. The French colonial government crushed the uprising. And because of that, the communists were actually really weak in the South for the remainder of, of World War II compared to the non-communist groups. Meanwhile, there's two major religious groups in Southern Vietnam that sided with the Japanese because they hoped the Japanese would help liberate Vietnam. Those two religious groups are very popular. They have a large mass following among the peasants and they are actually numerically far stronger than the communists in, in the Southern half of Vietnam. So in both parts, both halves of Vietnam, this rift that existed widened during World War II. So then what happens after the war? Or, or what do you think is the crucial date? Because now um, when World War II ends, there, there's various international sentiments. So how would you say the, these sorts of emergent divisions play into what's going on on the broader geopolitical scale? So, so the major event is when Japan surrenders at the end of the war, there's a vacuum of power in Vietnam. And the Viet Minh was the most organized group, and they seized power. They planned to declare independence. So that raised a really big question. You know, Vietnam at that point had a variety of political groups. If one group comes to power, what's going to be their attitude towards these other groups? Are they going to try to work with these other groups to create a more representative government, more cooperation? Or are they going to suppress the other groups in order to prevent dissent, to create a stronger, you know, to, to, to create some sort of political unity or like a... So the, so the, you know, the energies of the revolution would not be dissipated among different groups. The answer that the, the Viet Minh, the communist led Viet Minh come up with is like the answer of many governments in 20th century Vietnam. They decide that they want to dominate power. So after the Viet Minh seize power, they form a government that doesn't really incorporate the other groups, not to a little bit later when they're forced to. And even when they form a coalition government under pressure, it's not the different allies don't really trust each other. And there's also a lot of violence during these the early months after the Vietnamese seizure of power, which also poisons the relationship between these different groups. 
So very early on, the relationship between these different groups are very, very tense. And it's in many ways, it's not surprising that they don't manage to get along and they don't manage to form a lasting coalition government. Nguyen, can you talk a little bit, you mentioned the two religious groups in the South that sort of threw in with the Japanese. This is an interesting aspect of this to me, and I wonder if you could go into a little more detail. One of the, one of the groups was Buddhist, the other seems to have been a little more esoteric, let's say. What did they get out of their relationship with the Japanese occupiers, and, and what did it mean for them um, in terms of, let's say, popular support when the Japanese finally, you know, removed the, the French authority, but then didn't go all the way to, to granting independence. Sure. So maybe I should start talking about what they are. And then the, the, the that, yeah, yeah, that would be great. General yeah. background for people who have zero <laughs> knowledge of what's going on. So the first group, which is probably more well-known, is the Gaudai religious group. They're a syncretic faith that was founded in the 1930s. And they're based in Thainan province, or rather, I should say, the main branch of the faith is based in Thainan province, which is in southern Vietnam, bordering Cambodia. This is a syncretic faith that aimed to sort of take different elements of the three main Vietnamese religions in particular, Buddhism, Confucianism, and Taoism. And they also include other elements of other of local cults and other religions. And they create the syncretic faith. And they were really, really quite popular. Um, they had a really large peasant following. And I think that's something that when Westerners look at these religions, they, they kind of get confused, is that Westerners tend to think of, at least by this point, politics and religion as being really separate. But for these groups, they're not really separate at all. So that's the first group, I should say. The second group is the, are the Hao Buddhists. They are a reformed Buddhist sect that's based in the Mekong Delta. They also have a very, very popular following in the upper Mekong Delta. And both of these, we might look at these as sort of like indigenous religions of Vietnam, especially southern Vietnam, where they have a strong presence. Neither of these two religions have that strong of a presence you know, in the northern half of Vietnam. So they're, they're in many ways very distinctively southern. Both of these groups, um, when we talk about them being pro-Japanese, it doesn't mean that they were pro-Japanese at any cost. They were pro-Japanese only insofar as they thought being pro-Japanese meant being pro-Vietnamese. Um, they, the, the Japanese, uh, so for a long time, there was an exiled Vietnamese prince living in Japan. He had been involved in the revolutionary movement. Um, both of these groups threw their support behind that prince. And they expected that the Japanese, or they hoped that the Japanese would overthrow French colonialism and put that prince in power. So for them, being pro-Japanese was a way of supporting what they hoped would be an independent future Vietnam under a nationalist prince. So that, I think, also leads me to think about maybe regionalizing these movements because we had a, a episode with James Lin where we talked about Taiwan and the formation of Taiwan. So is there any sort of trans-regional interaction happening here? Obviously, communism, very international, all sorts of movements. Is that same? Uh, is that also true for revolutionary anti-colonial nationalism? Could you, I'm not sure I quite understand the question. Like, so are there like exchanges between the Republic of China and the Republic? you know, the nationalists in China and the nationalists in Vietnam or nationalists elsewhere throughout Asia, or is this mostly uh, focused locally? It's very much, um, uh, you could really put Vietnam within a larger regional framework and see the echoes of larger ideological trends within Vietnam. So clearly the communists in Vietnam, they look often to Moscow. Um, there are Vietnamese Trotskyists who became converted to Trotskyism in Paris and then came back to southern Vietnam, where they were originally from, and organized Trotskyist groups. 
um, there, the Vietnamese Nationalist Party, which was the very first um, modern political party in Vietnam, they adopted the philosophy of Sun Yat-sen, the three principles of the people. So they were very much influenced by Chinese republicanism. They were also influenced by um, French republicanism. Um, I'd also point to the Dai Viet Nationalist Party, which was influenced by fascism. Um, I don't know if that's quite fair to call them all the way fascist. They were certainly close to it, but they were interested. They, they, they were, were on the spectrum of fascism, <laughs> right? Because it's a spectrum, like all political movements, democracy, fascism, yeah, liberalism, yeah. And they were especially influenced by sort of the racialist thinking of fascism. They weren't genocidal. I use fascist here not as a, as, as a saying they're bad, but as a descriptive term. That they understood the struggle, the anti-colonial struggle, the struggle for Vietnamese independence as a struggle for the survival of the Vietnamese race. So you see the influence of this sort of racialist thinking of fascism there. It's a little hard to tie the, the sort of the two southern groups to the larger trends, but you do see a part of it. I would like to see more research on this, and, and I was not able to fully flesh this out. But my hunch is that the Gaudai group that was facing Bay Men, that syncretic faith, their politics, I think, is similar to the politics of Japan and eventually Taiwan after World War II. I think there's some similarity there. I think there's some continuity there, but I haven't seen the research that would really draw out that connection. But I do think there are some affinities between their politics and the type of pro-Western politics you see in those parts of East Asia after World War II. So let's actually talk for a second about those politics. What precisely are they? Are they pro-capitalist, pro-Western? What makes this group unique ideologically? The anti-colonial Republican nationalists, let's say. So their their politics change over time, of course. But for me, one of the most interesting, two of the most interesting groups are the Vietnamese Nationalist Party and the Social Democratic Party. So the Vietnamese Nationalist Party is the party that I just mentioned that adopted the philosophy of Sun Yat-sen and was very influenced by French republicanism. And so because of those two influences, they very much favored democracy, at least in theory. They never really were empowered to implement it. So they envisioned, and, and they really, when I say adopted the philosophy of Sun Yat-sen, I really do mean they adopted his philosophy and, and strategy. They envisioned that there would be this temporary period of military authoritarian rule, and then Vietnam would transition, after this revolution, would transition to democracy. So they really believed in the future, a future democratic republic. The Social Democratic Party is also another very interesting party, and it's easy to talk about some of these parties more than others because there's more records. So the Social Democratic Party was founded in 1947 by um, a number of intellectuals working with the founder of the Hua Hao religion. So they're, they're very affiliated with the Hua Hao religious group that was based in the Mekong Delta. What's interesting about this party is that this party adopts the idea of sort of a Western European style social democracy to the conditions of the Mekong Delta. So the Mekong Delta, like many parts of Southeast Asia, was this plantation society that was very stratified. There were a small class of landlords and a large class of tenant farmers and sharecroppers. What's interesting is that this, the Social Democratic Party took the ideas of social democracy, but rather than for you know, an industrialized country, they're creating for an, the adapted for an agrarian society. So they believe in things, they want to promote things like farmers' cooperatives, robust social services for peasants and workers. They reject class struggle, but they're very much in favor of sort of a social spending for peasants in particular. They want the government to build more infrastructure. They want things like agricultural credit. So there's an emphasis on the how do we meet the needs of these peasants in the Mekong Delta. 
those two groups for me are very interesting because those two groups are probably the most democratic-minded groups among the sort of major anti-communist nationalist groups. So let's kind of move from 45 to 54. What happens over the course of 45 to 54? Do, do any one of these groups emerge as, you know, the primus inter paris, the first among equals? Does one begin to dominate? Um, how do they all interact in, in this fermenting, again, period? So after the Vietmen seized power in 1945, they declared uh, Vietnamese independence in early in September. That independence does not uh, last very long because the French return, the Allies arrive in Vietnam to disarm the Japanese, and eventually the French return and try to recolonize Vietnam. This is the conflict known in the West as the First Indochina War. Um, in Vietnamese materials is often described as the world resistance or the anti-French resistance or the resistance period. And it's during this period where we really see the schism, and not just a rift between these different groups, but a clear schism between the communists on the one hand and basically everyone else who, turned, who if they weren't anti-communists to begin with, turn anti-communist during this time period. So initially, these various groups work together or try to work together. They have this sort of very fragile coalition government that they, may, they eventually form in order to fight the French. But this alliance, these coalition governments were really fragile because they really distrusted each other. And fairly soon, they turn to infighting and they are murdering each other. So in the North, it's the communists who launch the major offensive against the other parties. They nearly wipe out some of the other parties. In the South, because the communists are not as weak and the sect, um, the Gaudai and the Huahau are stronger, we see more of a sort of a, I, I want to say, a, a conflict between equals where the non-communist groups are fairly successful. There's a scholar who describes this sort of this three-way struggle where there is the communists who are fighting against the French, the communists who are fighting against the anti-communists, and the anti-communists who sometimes fight, who sometimes fight the French and, who, and, and sometimes fight the communists. And, and also, I would imagine, fight each other. You know, there's all these yes. internal divisions as well. And it's different with, com and correct me if I'm wrong, but with communism, it sounds like there's, I mean, there's obviously internal divisions, but it's more coherent than literal different political parties within the sort of anti-communist revolutionary nationalism. Is that correct? Is that a difference? Yeah, I, I would say that that is a difference. Although at the same time, if you think of it in only in terms of two camps, the communists, the anti-communists, it does look like the communists are more coherent than the anti-communists. At the same time, if you remember that these two camps originated in what was of quite a diverse variety within the revolutionary movement, what it looks like is one party became really strong and all the other parties remained separate. It's not that they failed to be coherent, it's that they were really separate to begin with. Right. So what happens over the course of the early 1950s? Because there's the Geneva Conference in 1954, which officially divides Vietnam internationally into two states. So, so what happens over the course of the, of the early 1950s in the run-up to Geneva? So what happens is that as these coalition go governments, these very fragile coalition governments made up of different groups crumble, the various anti-communist nationalists come to the conclusion that they cannot form a government with the communists they decide they want to form a separate government. And in order to do so, they've got to work together and they've got to find someone or something that transcends these political differences that can be a symbol of unity. Eventually, they turn to Baodai, the last Vietnamese king or the last Vietnamese emperor. He had abdicated in 1945 in favor of the communist-led Viet Minh. He later grew disillusioned. 
and he leaves the country. So many of these groups come to him and say, please, you should form a new government that is separate from the government the communists have created. That's the, that's the we need a future non-communist government. At the same Just a time, quick question yeah. before, what does Bao Dai have any actual beliefs himself? Does he have any ideology? What does he want? So you have a bunch of groups who are broadly anti-communist, but who have very different approaches to democracy, to politics, to policy, coming to Bao Dai. So what does he think? That's a really hard question to answer. I didn't do as much research on Bao Dai. Bao Dai is clearly very anti-communist by this, this point. Um, he does have a sort of a general patriotism. Um, my sense is that he's not as democratically minded as, say, the Vietnamese Nationalist Party or the Social Democratic Party. And I think he also wasn't necessarily sort of, he wasn't someone who had spent his youth fighting, you know, running around in underground groups and fighting for the revolution. So I don't think he necessarily had the same sort of political experience or the political vision of these other groups. I think that he tried his best, given his circumstances and his abilities, to negotiate with France for independence because the French approached him and said, well, actually, we want you to form the figurehead of this new nominally independent, not really independent government as a ploy to try to win, win back Vietnam and defeat the communists. So the French were not necessarily interested in granting full independence. Bao Dai was in the situation where he had the anti-communist nationalists on the one hand saying, form a government, demand independence from the French, and the French not really giving ground, I think he was in a really difficult position. And I think he tried to do the best he could do in that situation. And when he did not succeed in creating an independent government, many some of the anti-communists grew disillusioned and wouldn't work with him. Others said, well, this is the best we can do, so they would work with him. And I think that much of the what we associate with him, like sort of, that his womanizing, his gambling, his dissipations, that's become the sort of the dominant image of him um, among many Vietnamese, and I think in the West as well. I think a part of that, not all of it, but a part of that is that he refused to play the sort of puppet emperor that the French wanted him to, and so he would reject that and he would engage in his own entertainment, and that was a form of passive resistance in his mind, I think, but for other people, he just looks like a lazy, spoiled emperor. Right. So so they go to Bao Dai, Bao Dai agrees, then what happens? So at the same time that these anti-communist nationalists are approaching Bao Dai, the French are also approaching Bao Dai and talk about their plans to create a government that can rival the government that the communists have created. Bao Dai and the French spend a couple of years in negotiations. The French do not give him the independence that he wants. So eventually what is established is this nominally independent government known as the state of Vietnam. And it belongs to this larger framework that includes the state of Cambodia and the state of Laos. So these three governments that are supposed to form sort of this Indo-Chinese union or this as a part of the larger French union. Could you maybe talk about that for a second? What was the plan in terms of union and how did it relate to French colonialism? So... This was sort of the French plan to prolong French colonialism in Asia. And the way the French presented it is that each of these uh, states, these associated states, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, might, would have its own parliament, would have its own army, but there were certain powers that remained with the French. Things like diplomacy, economic affairs, ultimately control over military affairs. And this was supposed to be a framework 
in which there, there was some autonomy, but not complete autonomy, and that the French were going to gradually transfer public agencies from the French colonial government over to these associated states. So this very gradual act of independence. There was no reason anymore for the war to continue. Well, it went on, because the Viet Minh did not want that kind of independence, labeled Baodai independence. There were some Vietnamese who bought into this because they saw this as a part of, you know, they liked the idea of eventually autonomy. They liked the idea of having, you know, a separate parliament for Vietnam, that they thought that these are Republican reforms that would move Vietnam towards an independent and democratic future. And how did it work in practice? <laughs> it didn't quite work the way these, you know, these Vietnamese, some of these Vietnamese supporters hoped. So the anti-communist nationalists are quite split. Some refused to work with this government called the State of Vietnam. Others worked with this government because they thought that it was the best they could do. And it was a tool or it was a way of keeping Vietnam from turning communist. So, I mean, many of these anti-communist nationalists at this point feel that the communism is as great a threat, if not a greater threat, to the Vietnamese nation as French colonialism. But there were also groups who saw this as a, something that they could take advantage of in order to prepare for a future. So the Gao Dai and the Hoa Hao, those two religious groups in the South, they worked with the state of Vietnam, but they really didn't allow the state of Vietnam to sort of penetrate the areas that they controlled. So both of these groups had a strong peasant base in the South, and they formed these autonomous zones where they basically ran the local governments, the local justice, they provided the jobs for the local population. And they, it was a way of thinking about it is that it was a way of achieving independence at the local level. They kept the French out and they sort of worked with the state of Vietnam, but it didn't allow the French aligned state of Vietnam to really uh, penetrate those autonomous zones. So just to be clear to everyone, the state of Vietnam lasts from roughly 1949 to 1954, and then there's the Geneva Conference of 1954, where the state, which includes both North and South Vietnam, is divided. So Nguyen, why don't you tell us about Geneva and the negotiations um, on both sides, on the, on the communist side and then on the anti-communist nationalist side, and, and how they shaped what would become this incredibly important division of the country? The negotiations at Geneva began, I believe, in May 1954, and both the communist government, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, which had been fighting for independence against France and fighting against anti-communists, that was on one side. The other side was the French, and they were trying to come up with a way to end the war. A ceasefire agreement was signed by the French and the Viet Minh communists. The armistice terms placed 12 million people under communist rule, but ended a critical situation that had drained France of 92,000 lives and $8 billion. The state of Vietnam actually had observer status at the conference, but it really didn't have any voting powers. So... Nguyen, just actually one quick thing, because I don't think we made clear. Mm -hmm. There's fighting throughout 49 <laughs> to, to 54, right? There, there's all these military engagements, and, and, and there's fighting as, as sort of France tries to consolidate a new form of neo-colonial rule, and there's differences between the communists and the anti-communist nationalists. There's differences within both of those camps. So there's fighting between 49 and 54. So the Geneva Conference is meant to put an end to that in, in some meaningful way. Right, so this fighting basically between 45 and 54. Sorry, early, 45, yes, sorry, yes, so, yes. The state is founded in 49, yeah. but there's fighting from immediately after World War II. 
Right. And so it's something that I think sometimes people forget is that the way the, the way Westerners talk about it and talk about the terms of the first Indochina War and that that begins in December of 46. For Vietnamese people who lived through this, the fighting began in September 1945 in the South. It just didn't become an open-ended war until over a year later. But for Vietnamese people who lived through this, this was a very bloody period. Yeah, it's almost a decade of war between, um, you know, 45 and, and, and 54. So there's this desire to put an end to it. And this war is a very complicated war. I think when we think of the term First Indochina War, especially in the West, we generally think about this as a war between French, who want to recolonize Vietnam, and the communist-led Democratic Republic of Vietnam, who wanted independence. That was definitely one of the major axes of, or axes of the war. But there were also other things going on. There were these anti-communist nationalists who were fighting the communists. That, there was a civil war aspect to it. And for anti-communists, they remember this war as both an anti-colonial war and a civil war simultaneously. So yeah, that's that's really helpful. Thank you. And so, and, and we see this also come out during the Geneva the Geneva negotiations, where the main negotiators were France and the Communist Democratic Republic of Vietnam, whereas the state of Vietnam only had observer status. And this was something that was really, really frustrating to anti-communist nationalists. They were really worried because they understood that the fate of their country would be decided and they would not have much of a say in it. Why did they only have observer status? Did the French just consider them too weak to essentially challenge that? Because that seems kind of strange that they would only have observer status when their fate is being decided. I believe that's the case. I haven't done um, original research on the, the, the Geneva Conference and the status of the state of Vietnam during the Geneva Conference, but I believe that's the case. Now, the state of Vietnam... Its army was founded in 1951 and it remained under the command of the French Expeditionary Corps. In, course, in yeah. you know, who was, that was the, the, the French forces in Vietnam. So it really didn't have the military teeth to back the power that it wanted to claim. That largely, I believe, explains its observer status. Great. So, so then what happens at the conference? So the representatives of the state of Vietnam are not especially happy that they don't really have a seat at the table. So uh, what happens there? So the solution that the negotiators eventually come up with is that they're, they're going to divide Vietnam into two regroupment zones, that the DRV, the communists, are going to withdraw to the northern half of this regroupment zone, and the French are going to withdraw to the southern half. Now, there were other uh, the proposals about how to divide Vietnam. One of them was not to have a north-south partition, but rather to have certain areas be designated as DRV areas, and certain areas be designated as French areas, and not necessarily... Um, I think it's often described as a leopard spot pattern rather right. than rather than a north-south. Yeah, various zones, right? Yeah, which actually kind of happens during <laughs> the the the, Viet, the American War in Vietnam, where there are these like zones that become communist controlled. But why did the north-south partition win out? You know, to tell you the truth, I haven't done original research on the Geneva negotiations. If I remember correctly, I think it's because that. It'll be the easier D to administer, that's for sure. Yeah, the, the, the DRV, certainly the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, the communists definitely pushed for the latter because that favored them. But I think there was also a, a realization that maybe their position wasn't strong enough to get what they wanted of it during the negotiations. I'm a little bit more familiar with sort of the state of Vietnam's reaction to this. For the anti-communist nationalists in the state of Vietnam, this was a major disaster. And there was also this, for them, there was also this feeling that Vietnam was being divided and they didn't have a say in it. And there, there was also something strategic going on. They blamed the communists for agreeing to the Geneva Agreement that divided Vietnam, even though it's not as if the anti-communist nationalists at that point had the power to prevent it. 
But one of the sort of rallying cries by Modinian's government later on is always that the communists are the one who divided Vietnam because they're the ones who agreed to the Geneva Agreement. We did not sign that agreement. We, we were not okay. And there were actually um, anti-partition demonstrations in Vietnam in the summer of 54 in anticipation of and then in reaction to the, the Geneva Agreement. So then what was the reaction amongst the nationalists to the division? You mentioned that there are protests in the summer of 54. What does Bao Dai do? Are there any leaders that begin to emerge at this time as Vietnam is formally partitioned? Uh, what goes on? So the reaction was one of, the immediate one was outrage. But one of the interesting consequences is how it affected the, the different anti-communist nationalist groups differently. So for those in the South, this actually, who were already in the, in the Southern half of Vietnam, this actually made them much stronger because once the partition of Vietnam took place, they were the ones who were already in the South. They, they already had the networks and the territories and the organization that made them much stronger. Whereas groups in the North, for them, this was a major disaster because they would now have to move South or face persecution by the communists. So one of the sort of unintended effects of this of this political consequences of this Geneva Agreement is that there's a large number of people in the North who move South, many of them, not just people who are attached to the state of Vietnam, but also civilians. And among the civilians are people who will belong to these anti-communist nationalist groups. But when they move South, their organizations are so weakened by the migration that they become much weaker compared to other anti-communist nationalists, the ones that were already in the South. So in many ways, it changes the relationship between anti-communist nationalists initially. And this is why after 1954, um, so under the late state of Vietnam years, which the state of Vietnam lasted technically until um, 55, not yeah. 55. So this is why the earliest challengers to Ngo Dinh Diem were those southern religious groups, because their organizations and territories had not been destroyed by the partition. Let's wrap up with a couple of questions, but you just mentioned... Um, Forgive my pronunciation. I've already heard ZM. Is that not correct? That's broadly. Oh, that's uh, correct. It's I, I speak a Southern Vietnamese accent. So it's oh, okay. the same, so it's the I'm same name. Say, I'm going to say ZM if that's <laughs> all right. So does is this when um, ZM emerges as the major figure in what will become the Republic of Vietnam's politics? Or w- what is he doing around 1954? And this will set us up for the next episode. So where is he? And then I, we could begin next episode talking about him fully, you know, do the whole ZM shebang. But where is he at this time? He was in Europe by that point, before that he had been in the United States. He spent much of this war against France abroad because the Viet Minh threatened his life. And so his brother, especially his brother Ngo Dinh Nhu, remained in Vietnam and organized on his behalf. So his another brother too, Ngo Dinh Gang. So these two brothers organized a political party on behalf of Ngo Dinh Nhu. And they played a major role in agitating for independence and um, agitating against the state of Vietnam government for not implementing independence quickly enough. And so Bao Dai, who was technically the chief of state of the state of Vietnam, he had the power to choose the prime minister. He was planning to choose a new prime minister in the spring of 54. And at that moment, Ngo Dinh Diem's political faction was on the rise. So Bao Dai chose Ngo Dinh Diem in part because he thought that Ngo Dinh Diem would be able to gain the support of the various anti-communist groups. And Bao Dai also thought that the Americans would back Ngo Dinh Diem because Ngo Dinh Diem was one of the few anti-communist nationalists, one of the few prominent ones that had lived in the United States and had formed ties with prominent Americans. 
And this actually ties back to the Geneva Agreement. During the Geneva Conference, the state of Vietnam put forth this proposal that was fairly unrealistic about calling for the army of the, of the Communist Democratic Republic of Vietnam to be dissolved and, and, and integrated into the army of the state of Vietnam and how the U, UN should oversee the unification of Vietnam under the government of the state of Vietnam. This is a very unrealistic proposal. But when the state of Vietnam made that proposal at the conference, the only power to back it was the United States. And that convinced Bao Dai that France has abandoned his country. The United States is going to be its new patron. Therefore, he's got to choose a prime minister that the United States will back. And he thinks Nguyen Viem is, that, is the man of the moment. So that's a great way to end, a great place to end. And I like that we didn't really talk about the United States until the end. And for next episode, we could talk more about ZM where he comes from, his ideology, his life story, and then we could also talk about the United States' interests. But everyone, I have to say, I didn't like that we didn't talk about the United States because I think we should always talk about the United States. When the United States is not on the screen, we should be asking, where's the United States? We should be talking about them all the time. (laughs) I agree. Derek was uh, texting me furiously in anger. Um, (laughs) But Nguyen, thank you so much. Everyone check out uh, Nguyen Tran's new book, Disunion, Anti-Communist Nationalism and the Making of the Republic of Vietnam. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.